0: our last verse that we studied last time as we are going through the book of Colossians on Sunday evening the last verse we studied is a great great verse indeed in terms of answering the error that is so prevalent concerning the church of our Lord today that is that the church is not uh, significant, not absolutely essential, that we need to be more concerned about the man than the plan, more about Christ than the church, and it is a matter of one's choice as to whether or not he even uh, affiliates himself with a religious uh, group, a religious body. And yet, it is abundantly clear that from Colossians 1.18, the last verse that we studied last week, that Christ is the head of the body and that the body is the church. And beyond that, it is abundantly clear in Scripture that it is not a question of of churches uh, in terms of a plurality, although certainly in the climate in which we find ourselves today, it's very difficult for most people to conceive that there could be one body or one church versus many churches. And yet that is exactly what the Scripture says. Affirms. And that's what Paul makes abundantly clear in the last verse we studied last week. He is the head of the body, the church, the body, singular, the church, singular. The body is the church, and the church is the body. And in the Ephesian epistle, he makes that abundantly clear there as well. As he, in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, writes, And he, God, gave him, Christ, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, again emphasizing as he does in the Colossian letter, that the church is the body. Gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is the body, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The manifold wisdom of God has been made known through the church. The Ephesian letter also points out. But in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, there is one body, we are told, as those seven ones are enumerated there, among which is the one body, and clearly the one body is the church. Therefore, there is one church. Now, when we make that, when we make that statement, we are not saying that the church about which we're speaking, the church of the New Testament, the church of Christ, is, is the best denomination you could be a part of among all the denominations that are out there. And yet many, because they have such a denominational concept about the church, might think that that's what we are saying. But we're, we're, saying, we're saying lay aside all the denominational creeds. Lay aside all of the traditions of men, the teachings of men, and simply unite in the one body, the one church, not a denomination, but a non-denominational body In fact, a pre-denominational body, as we often say, because it existed before any denomination ever existed. And if if you were to have approached someone who had been baptized on Pentecost uh, there, as recorded in Acts 2, after that individual had been baptized and you had uh, questioned that individual and uh, ask this question, well, what what denomination did you become a part of now that you've been baptized? What denomination are you a part of? Uh, Are you uh, a part of a particular denomination? And you could name off several, several hundred, uh, obviously, now. That individual who had just been baptized on Pentecost Day would look at you very strangely and say, what is a denomination? What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know anything about a denomination. What I know is that I heard Peter and the other apostles preaching that we had become guilty of crucifying the Christ, the very Son of God, and we wanted to know how to get out of that guilt, and we were told repent because we obviously believed what we had heard. We were told to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins and that we would be added and we're added to the church, the body of believers, we we didn't know we had any other options. We don't know anything about denominationalism. We don't know anything about these denominations you've named because there was no denomination. There was but the body of Christ, the church, and it is the church of Christ, Romans 16, 16, the churches of Christ salute you, That means the various congregations because the church is used in one of two ways, either as in the congregational sense as the church at White Oak, the Lord's church at White Oak, or it's used in the universal sense of the church as a whole, the church period, worldwide, universally. But there is no room in either designation or in between for a denominational description of the church. It doesn't exist. It's either a congregation, a local church, or it is the church uh, as a whole, the church for which Christ shed his blood and purchased with his blood, and over which he is now, even this very night, head, head of the body, the church. Now that was the last thing we studied, and it certainly is vitally important that we understand the singularity of the church, the importance of the church, the absolute essentiality of the church because Christ purchased the church with his blood and in that same Ephesian epistle at Ephesians 5.23 we learn that as the husband is head of the wife Christ also is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. I want to be saved don't you? If I want to be saved then and I learned from Ephesians 5.23 that Christ is the Savior of the body. And I know from Colossians 1.18 and other passages that the body is the church. That means he's the Savior of the church. And that means he's not the Savior of those outside the church. Therefore, I must make sure that I'm in the church I read about in the New Testament in order to be among the saved. And indeed, that's what, this is what the Scriptures tell us. And I recognize that we live in a world tonight that is tragically confused by the proliferation of denominations, and yet we need to get behind all that and come back to the Scriptures and speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent, be Christians, nothing more, nothing less, and be a part of the pre-denominational church over which Christ is head. And that's what Paul is emphasizing in this Colossian letter The all-sufficiency of Christ and, of course, here in the verse we concluded with last time, the church over which the Christ is head. And then as we continue tonight, looking at verses 19 through 23 of Colossians chapter 1, in verses 19 and 20, After telling us that he's the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. He goes on, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. What is meant by that? That in him all the fullness should dwell. Now keep in mind that Paul is writing to a church at Colossae that is being being threatened by a heresy, That became known as the Colossian heresy where there were these Judaizing teachers, there were these Gnostics, uh, these pagans, a mixture of all three that were seeking to influence these Christians at Colossae and trying to tell them that there was no way that deity could become humanity. There was no way that God could dwell among men in human fleshly form. Uh, they believed in uh, a series of angelic beings from which God would ultimately reach down to man through this angelic order. But God himself, deity, uh, actually having direct contact with humanity, that was an impossibility. No, that's what Paul is refuting in much of his writing here. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. The fullness of what? The fullness of deity. Look over at Colossians 2 verse 9 because we need to look at 119 in relation to, uh, to 2.9. Because in 2.9, as we'll continue our study and get there, but let's preview that, he says, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And I think Colossians one nineteen has to be viewed in, in terms of uh, what is said in Colossians 2.9. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ, bodily, in human form. No question about the fact that Christ became flesh, John 1.14, and dwelt among men. Therefore deity can can dwell in a human body. It happened one time. It happened with Christ and the incarnation of Christ and the fact that he came in the flesh. And we're going to learn that he had to come in the flesh for a specific purpose And that is to be the specific and sinless sacrifice, the only sacrifice that could possibly reconcile us to God because of our sins. And so that's where he goes with verse 20. And by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. By him, that is by Christ, in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells. That is, there was nothing lacking. There's absolutely nothing that was lacking or is lacking in the Christ to be able to meet every need that we have. What a consoling thought that is. That he has undergone the temptations that we endure. That he has lived as a human being and yet as deity. That he is our perfect mediator, our perfect high priest. He in every way is fully and completely equipped. There's nothing lacking in him at all to be the one perfect mediator between God and men. And the one perfect sacrifice by whom and through whom reconciliation is achieved. To be reconciled is to be brought back to God. Who left in the first place? Man did. As man sinned in the garden and sin entered and thus death passed to all men, God set in motion the scheme of redemption through which and by which ultimately he would be able to reconcile us to himself. But there was only one way that that could be done in satisfying the absolute justice of God as well as allowing God to extend his wonderful mercy. And that one sacrifice was Jesus Christ. And in sending him, verse 20 tells us, he reconciled to himself, brought us back to him, all things that were at enmity with him. Now this phrase in the last part of verse 20 has been the subject of uh, a great deal of uh, controversy and speculation in terms of what about the things in heaven? We know that the things on earth needed to be reconciled to God. Human beings needed to be reconciled to God because... Human beings sinned. Well, what about those things in heaven? Uh, Satan's angels were no longer in heaven. They had been cast down to Tartarus uh, to be held in chains. 2 Peter 2 verse 4 uh, points out where they are. But what about the things in heaven? Well, it seems to me that the simplest, uh, and I believe the most logical explanation, is that this just simply shows the, the, the scope of the reconciliation, that now heaven is at peace with man, so to speak. That he made possible that reconciliation so that heaven could be reconciled to earth from the standpoint of God and the angels uh, being at peace, as it were, through the blood of his cross with all those here on earth. The peace didn't come automatically at the time that Christ died, but he, he laid the foundation for that peace to be accomplished. He made it possible for that peace to be achieved. How did he do that? By his sacrifice and thus obtaining the possibility of our pardon. Really, in these verses we're looking at tonight, you could summarize these verses, 19 through 23, in a few words. Pardon, that suggests the reconciliation, the pardon that was made possible by the sacrifice of Christ, the peace that resulted from that pardon, as verse 20 uh, points out. But also, verse 22, which we'll get to in a few moments, a presentation that that pardon makes possible before the throne of God one day, to present you holy and blameless. But, verse 23, as we'll see in a few moments, suggests perseverance. There is pardon... There is peace that comes through that pardon. There is a presentation that we can anticipate as we are presented holy and blameless and without spot to God one day. But it will only take place if we persevere. If I had to summarize the lesson from these uh, verses, those four words, I believe, would suffice in so doing. But back to verse 20, to reconcile, to make peace through the blood of God. Of his cross, there are many similar statements in Colossians and Ephesians, and I'd like to go to one that ties in, I think, beautifully here with this statement in Colossians one twenty from the Ephesian letter in chapter two, verse 14, beginning, for he himself is our peace, Paul there writes, who has made both, that is Jew and Gentile one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, to God in... Notice this now. We talked about the body in the early part of our comments. Reconcile them both to God, where? In one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. We have clearly established that the body is the church, that it's absolutely essential to our salvation. Ephesians 2, 16 says that reconciliation only can take place in the one body, and the one body is the church. You can't be reconciled to God. You cannot be brought back to God. You cannot be brought back to covenant relationship with God outside of the church about which we are speaking tonight, about which we spoke in the early part of this lesson in one body, through the cross. There are a great many people in the religious world tonight who will tell you the cross is absolutely essential to our salvation and we need to exalt the cross. And the cross is essential, and indeed it is. But you can't have the cross without the church. Ephesians 2.16 makes that an impossibility. Reconcile them both to God in one body, that's the church, through the what? Cross. Through the cross you come into the church and without coming into the church being added there too by the Lord himself upon obedience to the gospel believing, repenting, confessing and being baptized there's no hope of salvation. And so you cannot possibly separate the one body from the cross. People clamor for the cross but not for the church tragically for the most part. And so this reconciliation In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20 is also spoken of in the passage we just noted in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, the blood of his cross. But again, staying with the blood for a moment, where was that blood shed? It was shed in his death. Remember John 19, 34? There, after the soldiers came to hasten the death of those three who were on the cross, Christ and the two thieves, by breaking their legs, when they came to Christ, they didn't break his legs, that was fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that not a bone of his body would be broken. But they, what? The soldier took a spear, thrust it into his side, and there came forth blood and water. The blood of Christ flowed in his death. And the blood of Christ, according to the New Testament, flows for us in cleansing us from sin in the likeness of His death, which is what? A burial and baptism. We talked the other night about the reasonableness of this, the the logic of it, the fact that whether we could see any connection between baptism and forgiveness wouldn't make any difference. If God says it's essential for our forgiveness, we are to do it. But we can see, we can see that if the blood that cleanses us was shed in His death, the blood that cleanses us in order to reach us must be applied somewhere and God has chosen to do so in a very logical procedure, a burial in water. As we go into a watery tomb, as he went into a literal tomb, he came forth from that physical tomb, we come forth from that watery tomb, having been cleansed by the blood of Christ that is applied in the likeness of his death. As his literal blood was shed in his death, John 19, 34, We reach that blood in the likeness of his death. Why is that hard to grasp? Why is that difficult to believe? But tragically for so many tonight in the religious world, it is very difficult. And they work very hard to get around the essentiality of that process that God has ordained that we should follow it in order to be added to his kingdom, the church. Now then, in verses 21 And 22, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled. Well, about whom does he speak here? You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Well, that's all of us. I realize he's writing to the Colossian uh, brethren here, but it pertains to all of us, doesn't it? Because all of us, before we became Christians, if we are Christians tonight, and the only way that we we can be Christians by obeying the gospel, before that we were alienated and we were enemies. And yes, our works were wicked. Our works were wicked because they were contrary to the will of God. Oh, it doesn't mean we had to be uh, thieves and robbers and murderers in order to be characterized as wicked. Anyone outside of the kingdom of God is in the kingdom of Satan. And so this pertains to all of us at one point in time, at least, before we became children of God. Yet now, yet now, and I hope we're in the yet now group here uh, tonight. And if not, then certainly we need to be yet now. Anyone who's not needs to be. He has what? Reconciled. He's reconciled. But how did he do it? Here it is, in the what? In the body of his flesh there were some of the Gnostics who said Christ just appeared to die. Uh, He didn't really, he didn't really die, he swooned. There's the swoon theory, and there were others who talked about the swoon theory. Or that he could not have truly been human flesh and died as he did, and be deity at the same time. Again, getting back to that contention that the Gnostics had. But Paul is making it abundantly clear that deity in whom all the fullness dwells, as he looked at in verse uh, uh, 19, that that same Christ in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, in that human physical body of his what? Flesh through death. He died as a human being. He died in order to reconcile these Colossians and to reconcile all for all time to come, and yes, to reconcile, as we talked about Wednesday night, all who lived before and all who will ever live until time is no more who will meet the terms of Calvary. He bore the sins of all on his sinless shoulders at Calvary, physically dying the death of the cross, reconciling us to God, in the body of his flesh through what through death and what was the purpose the purpose was that one day so that one day he can present us as the latter part of uh, as the latter part of the verse uh, here says verse 22 to present us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight There's only one way that we can ultimately be presented to God as holy and as blameless and as above reproach. And that's because Christ reconciled us to God in the body of his flesh by shedding his blood on Calvary. And when we come to that blood, when we come to the blood through obedience to the gospel, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized, We rise from that watery grave holy. We rise from that watery grave blameless. We rise from that watery grave as being above reproach in his sight. And as long as we do what verse 23 is about to tell us, the presentation about which we read here in verse 22 will take place just as Paul intended for it to take place for these Colossians. You see, when he says to present you, I believe very strongly that presentation looks forward to the judgment. It looks forward to the time that he will present us holy, that is sanctified, set apart, separated, that's what the idea of holiness is, and blameless, not being capable of being blamed, and above reproach. There's not anyone who can bring a reproach against us. No one will be able to bring a charge against you or against me if we're faithful to the end we will be presented before God as holy and as blameless and above reproach that's what's ours but here's the key verse 23 if if and that's a little word with a big meaning isn't it if ye, indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Again, as we've often said, there are hundreds, literally hundreds of passages in the New Testament that make it so abundantly clear that salvation, once it is obtained initially, is not ours eternally without condition. And if you needed a verse to show you that, here it is, isn't it? In other words, he said in the previous verse, my purpose is to ultimately be able to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. But I can only do that if you continue in the faith, Christianity, grounded and steadfast on a solid foundation, immovable, steadfast. And are not what? And are not moved away from the what? The hope of the gospel. Tell me what the hope of the gospel is. The hope of the gospel is heaven, isn't it? The hope of the gospel is ultimate salvation. That's what the gospel has brought us. That's the hope that we have in the gospel, that one day because we've obeyed the gospel and because we're living in accordance with the gospel, one day our hope will be realized in heaven itself. Paradise initially, heaven ultimately and eternally. But what Paul says here is, you can be moved away from that hope. Hope is desire coupled with expectation. I desire to go to heaven, and I can expect to go to heaven if I'm a faithful child of God. That's what the scriptures teach. But what this passage clearly says is that I can be moved away from that hope. Scripture calls hope the anchor of the soul. So if I can be moved away from my hope, then I can lose my anchor. What happens when I've lost my anchor? I drift away. It couldn't be any clearer than Paul is making it, that every child of God is going to have to continue to be faithful unto death according to the gospel that was preached to every creature under heaven, of which Paul was a minister, We're going to have to be faithful to that same gospel that was preached the same way everywhere in the world. We're going to have to be faithful to that gospel even unto death or until the Lord comes again, whichever occurs first. And if we are not, then we will not be saved. The doctrine of once saved, always saved is so clearly refuted in this very clear passage and as we said in literally hundreds of others that could be cited. And so tonight, as we close our lesson, two questions certainly are pertinent. One is, do you have that hope of eternal life? Do you have the hope that is brought about as a result of the gospel? The hope that comes from obedience to the gospel. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, you can't have that hope. And to obey the gospel, you must express your faith in Christ... Repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, and be buried in baptism for the forgiveness of those sins. It is then and only then that you rise from a watery grave in hope of eternal life, but not with eternal life unconditionally. Because Paul makes it abundantly clear that once in the faith, you've got to continue in that faith, grounded and steadfast, and make sure that you're not moved away from that hope that you've gained. In obeying the gospel if someone's here tonight who has known that hope experienced that hope that desire and that expectation but you can no longer say that you expect to go to heaven that you cannot truly hope to go to heaven because you know that the world has moved you away from that hope then thanks be to god you have opportunity to be moved back to the anchor of your soul and to once again have the hope that you once had by repenting of sin that needs to be repented of and confessed in a public way with prayer to God as we pray with you and for you, to the God who will restore you to your first love and restore within your heart that hope that anchors your soul. Tonight, if you need to respond, will you come now as we stand to sing to encourage you?